Good morning. It's great to see you here this morning. It's been a great day already. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 15, but we're going to spend most of our time in Exodus. We're continuing our series, his story, looking at the, the, gray, the narrative thread that goes through the entire Bible that shows what God is up to. And what I want to start by saying is that every one of us, whether you know it or not, every one of us is a theologian. You are a theologian. Did you know that? Theology is just what you believe about God. So every human being alive has a theology of their own, what they believe about God. Even if they don't believe God exists, that's their theology. And here's the interesting thing. You can say, this is what I believe about God. You can list a list of doctrines that you say you ascribe to. But where the rubber meets the road, where you really find out what your theology is, is when times get tough. As, as Tony Evans says, uh, Christians are like tea bags. You know what they're made of when you stick them in hot water, right? So that's when your true theology comes out, is when life starts to fall apart. When life starts to fall apart, there are some Christians who cave immediately. They just... They, they, they default to this idea that if God is who the Bible says he is, then none of this should be happening to me. Therefore, the Bible must not be true and it must all just be a fairy tale. And therefore, I no longer believe. And then there are those Christians who get down on themselves when times get tough. They say, well, obviously, I'm not one of God's top priorities, probably because I'm not a good person. He has bigger things to do, more important people to pay attention to, and that's why things are going so poorly for me. And then there's a third kind of response that you often see from Christians in hard times. They'll say, I just need to believe. I just need more faith. If I have more faith, then I'll get my miracle. If I believe with enough faith, then God is going to give me what I'm asking for. And I, I just want you to know that all three of those viewpoints I just described are examples of poor theology. Because all three of those examples uh, underestimate God. They believe in a very small God. Even the one who says, I believe a miracle is coming, because all three of those believe in a God that is smaller than the one in the Scriptures. That third example, listen, I would love it. And there's a part of my flesh that would love it if God operated that way. If God was sort of like the fairy godmother in Cinderella. And you could just call on him and bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, you'd get what you wanted. Or to put it another way, like you're a rich guy and you've got a, a fancy lawyer on retainer. And all you have to do is pick up a phone, call the firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Right? And, and, and the lawyer shows up and, and, and saves your bacon. And there's a part of me that wishes God was that way. That whenever someone was mean to me, I could just kind of say, okay, dad, take over. And they would, they would be punished before my eyes. And uh, when I was down, he would lift me up and he would give me everything I asked for when I asked for it. And I would have all the success I wanted, all the blessing, all the comfort, all the pleasure. But in my heart of hearts and in the mind God gave me, and certainly in the redeemed part of me, the part that is becoming more like Jesus every day, I recognize that what I need is not a God who works for me, but a God who is redeeming the world. A God who doesn't necessarily give me everything I ask for, but always gives me everything I would ask for if I knew what He knows. A God who doesn't just uh, bless me, but is using me in His plan to accomplish His ultimate redemption. That's the God we serve. That's the God who is. And that's the God we want Him to be. See, 
Someone gave me a, a coaster some years ago for a gift, and it may have been one of you, and if it was, I still love you, we're still friends, but the coaster said, faith isn't believing that God can, it's knowing that he will, and that's baloney. Faith is believing that God is always going to do what's right, that God always has it, that we can trust him even when he doesn't do what we ask. So in this series, we've talked about how two weeks ago, we talked about how right at the creation, at the beginning of humanity, the beginning of the world, in fact, the beginning of the universe, God made, took a mess and made it beautiful. God took chaos and brought it peace. He brought it shalom, that whole sense of this is the way things ought to be. He took an inhospitable planet and made it a, a, a perfect place to live. Last week, we saw how when we had come into the world and our sin had had ruined everything and polluted his planet in, in a moral sense, God said, I'm going to redeem this world. And he started with an elderly, childless couple and said, I'm going to bring forth from you a race that will produce my Messiah, my salvation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was Abraham and Sarah. So this week, we're going to look at the story of the Exodus. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but many of you, if not most of you, know this story. You're familiar with this stuff. But I want to run through the high points of it real fast, okay? So in the story of the Exodus, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed for 400 years. Then God brings them a deliverer who starts his life as a baby placed into a basket uh, covered in pitch and floating in the Nile River. His mom puts him in the river because otherwise the soldiers are going to kill him because they're killing every male child. This basket is, is fetched by the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who says, I want to adopt this child. And this is one of the great details. Moses' own sister Miriam is watching as this happens and steps forward, very bold of this little girl, steps forward and says, ma'am, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? She says, that, that would be great. And so in one of the great twists in all of history, Moses' mother goes from, I'm bereft of my child to, I get to nurse my child and the Egyptian government pays me to do it. And that's how awesome God is. So Moses grows up in the family of Pharaoh, grows up later on, comes back to Egypt, confronts Pharaoh and says, you need to let my people go. The God of Israel, the God of my father says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And so God afflicts the Egyptians with 10 plagues. The Nile River turns to blood. Uh, livestock dies. The, the houses and streets of Egypt are infested with frogs and then gnats and then flies. Egyptians get, get boils that break out from the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. Hail destroys all their crops and whatever's left over gets eaten by a locust. And then finally the last plague hits and the firstborn of every Egyptian household dies. And the only the ones that survive are those whose, whose doorposts are covered with the blood of an unblemished lamb. And then when Pharaoh finally relents and lets them go, God parts the waters of the Red Sea and lets them walk through to the other side. Now, we know that story, right? But it's not Moses' story. This is what I want you to see. This is God's story. God is the prime actor here. And in the story of the Exodus, we see the activity of God. We see the nature of God. We learn certain things about Him. So what I want to do is I want to talk about four things we learn about God through the story of the Exodus. Okay? So number one, 
God always sees it coming. This is one thing we know about God. God is never taken off guard. He is never surprised. He is never ambushed. He always sees it coming. When this story is first told in the Bible, it's not in the book of Exodus, believe it or not. It's in, Exodus, it's in Genesis 15. So hundreds of years before it ever happens, here's what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, that means immigrants, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So God is telling Abram, hundreds of years before any of this happens, the, the people who come from you and Sarah, by the way, remember, they haven't even had a baby yet. The people who come from your, from your line, they're going to live 400 years as slaves. They will come back. They will possess this land in which you live. God saw it coming. The slavery, the oppression, and the deliverance. Here's another thing I love. Exodus 9.16. This is something that happens in the midst of one of the negotiations between Pharaoh and Moses, if you can call it a negotiation. Moses says, inspired by God, Moses says to Pharaoh these words. He says, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, listen to this. This is how awesome God is. He says, okay, you're Pharaoh. You're the most powerful person on earth right now. Do you know why you're the most powerful person on earth? Because I allow you to be. I have raised you up. What God is saying is, I wanted to free my people I could have done it at another time when there was a more cooperative Pharaoh. I could have had a more weak-willed ruler to set my people free, and it probably would have been easier. I waited until we had someone as powerful as you and as stubborn and willful and prideful as you because I need a worthy opponent. I need someone who all the world can see my power when I overcome you. I have raised you up so that I can knock you down and show all the world that I am the God who defeats oppression. I am the God who overcomes slavery. I am the God who brings freedom where there is bondage. I am the God who brings peace to chaos. God sees it coming. Now, it doesn't mean that God caused it. I want to make clear, and I said this last week. If you weren't with us last week, I said, if you're experiencing trouble right now, if you're experiencing pain or struggle of any kind, it doesn't mean that God has caused that to happen to you. As I said last week, when God causes pain to come into the lives of people as an act of discipline, He always, you can check this out in Scripture, He always makes sure that people know why it's happening. Otherwise, it's not an effective discipline. So otherwise, God doesn't cause your pain, but he sees it coming, and he's able to work it into his plan. God did not cause the Egyptians to oppress the Israelites, but he said, if that's going to happen, here's what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to work it into my plan. I'm going to make it redemptive. Back in 1963, some of you know your history. In 1963, Martin Luther King and the civil rights workers who followed him they were trying with all their might to change some really unjust laws in our country. Laws that said that if you're a certain color, you can't vote. You can't eat in these restaurants. You can't use our restrooms. You can't, you can't drink out of our water fountains. You can't go to our schools. And, and, and Dr. King and those behind him, they knew this was unjust. They knew this was wrong. And King was smart enough. He knew that the American people 
by and large, were fair-minded people. He knew that most of us, we wanted equality. We wanted to believe we're a good country. We wanted to believe this is a place where everyone has the same fair shot. But he also knew we were naive. He also knew that deep down inside, we, had to t- we told ourselves, well, everybody's basically like me. And so we don't need to change any laws. We just need to wait. I mean, there, sure, there's some unfair go- things going on in the South, but just give those people some time and they'll change their minds. They'll come to their senses. We don't really need to intervene. And King knew we needed to be awakened from that misgiving, from that, from that misunderstanding of reality. And so that's why they did the, the peaceful marches through southern cities. But notice what he did. There were plenty of southern cities he could have chosen where the mayors and the police were civil-minded, where they could have marched in peace and been untroubled. They chose, in 1963, they chose Birmingham, Alabama for a reason. Birmingham, Alabama was basically run by the police commissioner, a man named Bull Connor, who made it absolutely clear he hated black people, who made it absolutely clear he ran the city with an iron fist. And they said, if we go there, we will get our skulls cracked with billy clubs. We will be blasted with fire hoses. We will be mauled by German shepherds. So that's where we want to go. Because we want the world to see. We want the world to see that things need to change. So it was that 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 year, as ordinary men and women are sitting watching the evening news and eating their dinner, they see these horrible acts happen in their own country. And they rise up and they say, things need to change. And within a year and a half, all those unjust laws were struck down. Congress and president agreed it was time to change. And see, that's what God did in the Exodus. God said, I have chosen this time, this place, this person. I saw it coming. I'm going to use it for my advantage to accomplish my will. Because that's what God does. He always sees it coming. Second point. God always chooses the right person. Now, if you're my age or older, you probably picture Moses as Charlton Heston. If you're younger than me, Google him. He was a famous actor 50, 60 years ago. Um, every year at Easter time, they used to show, maybe they still do, uh, the movie The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston. Big, tall, square-jawed actor. But my money says that in person, When Moses stood before the Israelites for the very first time and said, God has sent me to deliver you, my guess is the real Moses looked a lot less impressive. Because here was a man who was in his 80s and probably looked a lot older because for the last 40 years, he's been working in the desert, tending sheep, basically working for his father-in-law. So he shows up and says, I'm here to deliver you. And they're like, where have you been all these years? We don't even know who you are. Before that, he was a fugitive from the law because when he was 40, he decided, I'm going, to, I'm going to fight for my people. And he killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And when his people didn't rise up to fight behind him, he ran away in fear and hid. He's been in exile for 40 years, half his life. And by the way, when God first came to Moses in, in, in Exodus chapter 3 and said, I have chosen you to be the deliverer of my people, Moses didn't say, well, what an honor, Lord, thank you. He argued with God. Exodus 3 is fascinating because in Exodus 3, Moses uses five different excuses to try to get off the hook. Five different times he says, well, I'm not the right guy, Lord. His last excuse is my personal favorite in Exodus 3.13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I'm out of excuses. I just don't want to do this. Let me tell you, 
the actual Hebrew of that sentence, here's how it reads if you translate it literally from Hebrew to English. Send, I beg you, by the hand of whom you will send, which is a fancy way of saying, send anybody but me, Lord. Moses did not feel qualified. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I'm just not good enough? A month ago, I stood in front of you and I, I laid out a vision that the, the rest of the pastoral staff and I believe God is leading us to over the next 10 years, that, that the focus of our church will not necessarily be to have huge attendance on Sunday mornings, although if that happens, great. It won't necessarily be to, to grow any of our programs. That's not going to be our focus. Our focus will be on equipping the people who God brings us here to impact lives out there individually. It's not going to be about programs. It's going to be about you individually making a difference in somebody's life. And we call those transforming relationships where you impact the life of your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your fellow church member, your, somebody you haven't even met yet. You invest in them, influencing them toward good, bringing peace to their chaos in some way. And when I say that, every time I say that, I can see the looks on some faces as you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but not me, right? Because I, I can barely manage my own chaos. I, I, don't, I can't be expected to positively impact someone else's life when I don't have my own act together. And others would say, but Jeff, you don't understand how busy my life is. I've got so many plates spinning right now, I can't add another relationship to that. that. That's for other people who have more spare time. Or someone else would say, you know, I'm really, deep down inside, I'm not that spiritually mature. I'm really not. I, I'm, I'm kind of a baby Christian. I, I'm not proud of that, but there are other people in this church that are a lot more, uh, a lot more lined up with the Lord's will than I am, so use them. I can just sit and applaud them, right? You know, the fascinating thing about the Bible is that God, it shows us, God delights in using people who feel inadequate. I mean, almost every time God comes to someone and says, you're the one I want to use, they immediately throw up excuses. You can go down the list of people God has called. So if you feel inadequate, you are a prime candidate to do great things for God. On the other hand, if you're a person who says, man, the Lord is lucky to have me on his side, you're the one that needs to change. The other thing I would tell you is, if you are waiting for that moment where you feel completely equipped and absolutely self-confident and where all of your little eggs line up, where you've got plenty of personal margin and, and, and it's just very convenient for you to serve the Lord at that moment, you are never going to serve God. If you're waiting for confidence and convenience, it's not going to happen. The time to write God a blank check with your life is right now. The time to go to God and say, Lord, I don't know what you wanted to do with me. I don't know how you're going to use me, but whatever, whoever you want me to impact for you, just show me because I'm yours. That's what I'm challenging you to do today. God always chooses the right person. Who's the right person? You are. Third, God is always working even when things seem to be getting worse. Now, if you've never read this story, I imagine many of you have, but if you've never read the story, you might be surprised to find out that when Moses takes this incredible leap of faith to go and stand in front of the most powerful man on earth, a man who could snap his fingers and have Moses' life blotted out, goes and stands before him and says, the God of my fathers says, let my people go. Moses does this. You might be surprised to find out that when Moses takes this courageous step, 
the first thing that happens is things get worse, not better. See, we think that if we exercise great faith with God, then immediately our lives are going to change. In fact, that's one of the problems I have with faith-based movies. In the faith-based movies, when the football coach gets saved, all of a sudden his team wins every game, right? When the, when the, when the boss uh, or the professor gives his life to Christ, all of a sudden everything's successful. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. Moses stands before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, number one, no. Number two, this is, this has shown me that you Jews have too much time on your hands. Obviously, we're not working you hard enough. If you've got time to come up with these little plots to go out into the wilderness and sacrifice to your, your so-called God. So, so we're just going to add to your workload. So from now on, see up till now, we've been giving you straw every day to use to make bricks. We're not going to give you straw anymore. You're going to be responsible for finding your own straw, but we're not going to change your quota of bricks at all. And so every day, the Israelite slaves are getting beaten because they're not fulfilling their quota because now their workload has increased. And they come and they, they, they stand before Moses and Aaron, his brother, and they literally say, thanks, guys. Thanks for making our lives worse. We didn't even know that was possible. You, you've somehow managed to do it. And here's what Moses says to God at that point, Exodus 5, 22 through 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Don't you love how honest the Bible is? I mean, this is, this is raw, real stuff. And here's what I love about Moses. Because we all feel this way sometimes. We all get to the point where we're like, God, I don't, I don't know what you're up to. And I don't, whatever you're up to, I don't like it. But what the Bible tells us consistently is when we feel that way, bring that to God. See, God is the opposite of every powerful person we've ever known. Powerful people don't tend to want complaints. They're like, keep it to yourself. Suck it up, buttercup. God wants us to bring us, wants us to bring him our heartbreak, our tears, our disappointment, our confusion. You look at Job, you look at David, you look at, at, at all the Psalms, you look at anybody in Scripture who's ever been angry at God, God welcomes that. He says, bring it on. I want to hear it. I know how you feel anyway. It's no use pretending. But what, he, what, what Moses does, this genius is, he comes before God, he says, I don't get it, Lord. I tried what you told me to do, and things have just gotten worse. Why did you even send me? But he doesn't walk away. See, that's our, our problem is. We're all, God is good all the time when things are good. But when life turns against us, we stop going to church. We stop praying. We stop praising. That's when we need Him the most. And guess what? Those are the times when often that's when God is planning something incredible. When God is up to something that we can't see, it's often something that's greater than the things we can see. So trust Him. That's faith. God is always working, even when things seem to be getting worse. And finally, and this is the best part, God's plans are always bigger than ours. Folks, let me just say this about prayer. Well, earlier, I, I said that I don't want a God who just does whatever I tell him to do. I want a God who does what I would do if I knew what he knows. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. You should pray. Because in praying, what we do is we cooperate with the work of God in the world and in our lives. And that's pretty exciting. And we get to see incredible things happen. 
Here's what I'm telling you to do. Here's how I'm telling you to change your prayers if you need to. Keep on praying whatever's on your heart, whatever's bothering you, whatever's got you down. Bring it before the Lord. Don't hold back anything. But don't stop there. Pray bigger prayers. Don't just pray for your own needs. Pray for everybody you know. Don't just pray for what's on your heart. Pray for this church. What do you wish this church would be? What do you think God wants this church to be? Pray for that. Pray for this community. What do you think God wants to see happen in our community? What do you think God wants to see happen in Washington, D.C.? Are you praying for those people? You should be. What do you think God wants to see happen in the United States of America? Do you think God's got some revival in mind for our nation? An awakening like we've seen three or four times in the history of our land? Why aren't you asking God for that? God's plans are always bigger than ours. We cannot possibly expect something too great for Him. So let's look at the story again. So what if God, instead of sending Moses and saying, okay, follow Moses, he's going to tell you where to go. What if God had just gone to the Israelites because they were crying out to him for relief from their slavery? What if he'd gone to him and said, okay, okay, guys, I heard your prayers. So what exactly do you want me to do for you? What if God had let the Israelites be in charge instead of him being in charge? They would have said, we just want you to make us free. We just want to wake up tomorrow and the Egyptians are just gone. And then what if God would have said, okay, you got it. So the next day they wake up, they walk out of their tents. There's not an Egyptian within a thousand miles. What would have happened to Israel at that point? They had no food. They had no money, no resources, no leadership, no plan. My guess is three quarters of them would have starved to death within a month. But instead, what does God do? God takes them through this process of watching what he's going to do to the land of Egypt, most powerful country on earth. He devastates their economy. He destroys their military. He humiliates their political structure. On the night they leave Egypt, when finally the Pharaoh relents and says, fine, leave. I, I, I can't stop you anymore. God says to the Israelites, hey, by the way, on your way out, stop and ask your Egyptian neighbors for gifts. So the Jews on their way out, they say to their Egyptian neighbors, listen, we've got a long journey ahead. Do you have anything to share with us? Any gold, any silver, any clothing? And the Egyptians by this point are terrified of the Israelites. And so they say, here, take it all. And so the Israelites who were slaves yesterday walk out as wealthy people who've plundered an entire nation. You think God didn't have a plan? And then on their way out, days down the journey, Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, what have I done? I've lost my whole workforce. They mount up their chariots. The world's strongest military comes charging across the plain toward the Israelites. God lets them get close enough that they say, we've got them now. And then that strong east wind blows across the Red Sea and parts those waters. And here's the part I love. Makes the ground dry. How does God do that? They walk across on dry ground. Then they turn around and watch as, as the Egyptian army barrels into the breach and the waters come crashing, cascading down upon them. The Israelites get to watch their oppressors die. These people who are responsible for countless numbers of babies killed and thrown into the Nile, who have beaten them mercilessly, who have used them as slave labor, who have treated them as less than human, now they get to see with their own eyes, these people will never hurt us again. We are truly free. You think God didn't have a plan? 
Not only that, he takes them across the wilderness. He gives them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gives them cities they didn't build, gardens they did not plant. He gives them a covenant, including a law, which if they will follow it, will result in a society more fair, more just than anything that's ever been uh, in history. A law that is so just that there will literally be no generational poverty in Israel if they just follow the law. I mean, there will be times where a dad will, will drink away his fortunes or a guy will, will invest poorly and lose the family fortune, but the next generation will get it back. God's got it all planned out. No one will ever stay in debt. No one will ever stay in slavery. Everything will be fair and just. God gives them this. They become the chosen people of God, instrumental in his plan to redeem the world. Not even the most optimistic Israelite could have predicted all that God had in mind. And that's not all. If you go back and you talk to Abraham 500 years earlier, you go back and you talk to Abraham and, and you say, okay, Abraham, here's what God is planning. He, he, wants, he wants your children, your, your offspring to be in slavery for 400 years and then come back and then this whole land will be theirs. Abraham might have, he didn't, but he might have said, hey, Lord, I got a better idea. Why not just skip the 400 years of slavery and give us the land now? If Abraham would have been an American Christian, that's probably what he would have said. Because that's how we think, right? We just want pain-free. We want trouble-free. We just want what we want. But what if God would have done that? What if God would have said, you know, you got something there, Abraham. Let's just skip the whole 500 years, the whole 400 years of slavery and, and all the time in between, and, and let's just give you the land now. Well, then there wouldn't have been the redemption. There would have been blessing, but not redemption. Let me show you what I mean. Joshua chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Now, this is the story of a woman named Rahab. Rahab was an inhabitant of a city named Jericho. You may have heard of it. There's a song about it. Jericho was the first city in the promised land that the Israelites invaded and had to conquer. It was a walled city. It was considered unconquerable. They sent two spies inside the city. Those spies were detected, and so they had to hide in this certain home. The home was owned by Rahab, who happened to be a prostitute. She took these two Israelite men and hid them and protected them by telling a false story to those who were searching for them. She risked her life to save theirs, in other words. And then later she's explaining to them why she's done this. In Joshua 2, 9 through 11, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She is describing her salvation. This pagan prostitute is saying, I am a believer in the one true God because of what happened in Egypt. She is redeemed because of what God did. And how many other millions of people have come to faith, saving faith, because of what happened to the Israelites thousands of years ago? In fact, you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11. This is great. Hebrews 11, for those of you that don't know, is the chapter where the author of Hebrews is describing for us what real faith looks like. He says, here's some examples of people who had real faith. Abraham and Sarah, Deborah, David. He goes right down on the list. You know who else is in that list? Rahab. Father of the Jewish people, greatest king Israel ever had, a female judge who won a battle, and a pagan prostitute. All in the same category. Why? Because of the Exodus. Because God did this thing. And that's not all. Remember me telling you about 
Dr. King and those people who marched for their rights 50 years ago. Those people, almost all of them were devout Christians. There were two stories that kept them motivated, two stories that kept them willing to be physically and verbally abused for a cause, two stories they kept telling themselves. One was Jesus, our Savior, who had all the power in the world, laid it aside and allowed himself to be tortured and killed and did not fight back. Therefore, we will be nonviolent in all we do. We will meet hatred with love. We will meet oppression with peace. The second story they told themselves over and over again was God was on the side of those who were oppressed. When it came to Moses and the Israelites, God was on their side and he brought them freedom and he will bring us freedom as well. Do you see what I'm saying? If God just would have given them the land without all this story in between, how many thousands of people would not have had their lives changed? God knew that people would be influenced who wouldn't be born for thousands of years. And here's what I'm here to say to you. That's true of you and me too. Let me tell you what I mean. There are lives that God wants to touch through your life who you will never meet. There are people who you and I won't meet this side of heaven whose lives will be changed if we just take a step of obedience right now. Someday, especially if we follow through on this vision, if we, are, if we do become a church that is, that is totally focused on transforming relationships, I believe that every one of us is going to have an experience in heaven on the new earth where people come up to us who we've never met and say things like, you know, because, because you were my best, the best friend to my mom when she was going through the darkest time of her life, I'm here today. Because, because you reached out to my parents when they were just about to get a divorce and you and your spouse came alongside and mentored them and encouraged them, they stayed together. And that's why I'm here today. Because when you had that young man who worked for you all those years ago, you were more than a boss to him. You were a mentor. You were a friend. You were, you were sort of a father figure to him. Therefore, he was my grandfather. And that's why I'm here today. Because you reached out to that woman who was caught in addiction. You didn't just say, it's not my problem. You got involved in her life. You confronted her. She turned away from addiction. She turned to Christ. She was my grandmother. That's why I'm here today. See, the, the relationships you choose to get involved in now, when it's in obedience to Christ, they have ripple effects that, that span out in, in ways we can't possibly calculate. But God knows. God knows whose lives he wants to change through you and me. And, and let me just say one more thing. That, that's not even all. See, God was accomplishing incredible things through the story of the Exodus because one day a man came along who was even greater than Moses. And on the day he died, it looked like infinitely terrible tragedy, but it was actually the greatest victory ever won. His death on the cross was our Passover. Jesus was our lamb who was slain for our sins so our sins would be nullified, so death would pass over us. When he rose again the third day and he did rise, that was when our Red Sea parted. We walked through to safety and we saw death defeated once and for all. Death was arrested as we sing in this service on a regular basis. His Spirit came into us and became our pillar of cloud by day and our pillar of fire by night. Therefore, we always know the truth. Therefore, we have a source that shows us the right path to take. His Word became our daily manna, our living water, our fountain pouring out, um, out through us, the Holy Spirit pouring out in us uh, a joy that cannot be tapped. 
And we entered into the promised land of abundant life. That, that is our story, but it's also His story. That's the story. That's what God does again and again and again. One heart, one family at a time, redeeming this world.